All right, I'm going to need two volunteers to come up. Um, Jake kind of did pull-ups, so I'm going to do like a psychological experiment. I know, it's scary. Probably no one will really say, oh, <laughs> can I get two people? Anyone? They're here. I, I'll do it from back there. All right, Ken and Nick. <laughs> Even though they, you didn't volunteer. Okay, I'm going to have you guys go outside and just be in a place where you can't hear me, and then Jeremiah will come get you when I tell him to do so. So maybe go to like the courtyard or somewhere out there. Right. Jeremiah, can you check if they can hear me and close the door? Uh, oh, yes, good. Okay, so we're going to do this. I'm going to take off this mic. So we're going to do this experiment that I did in high school, AP Psych class. Uh, it worked in the children's ministry, and if it doesn't work, I, my whole sermon's over, and we just go home. So hopefully it works right today as well. Um, we're going to have them do like this really random task. So I'm thinking we're going to have each of them individually come to the front and, and hit a symbol with like their hand or finger, right? Like this. And the way we're going to cue them to do that is two different ways. The first person who comes in we are only going to give them negative um, nonverbals, right? So if they're doing the wrong thing, you just shake your head or boo them or throw something at them. Nothing sharp, but blunt objects are fine. And then, um, and that's, but if they're doing it right, you just, you can't nod, you can't point, you can't use words. Does that make sense? So only like nonverbal, negative, no, no type things. You can say no as well. All right, and then the second person, we're only going to say yes to, whether that's nodding or yes, to help guide them to hit a symbol. Does that make sense to everyone? If you're confused, just sit there but, and follow the people around you, which is what we learned in junior high, right? Laugh when other people laugh and so on. All right, so um, let's see. Jeremiah? Yep. Okay. Or uh, I think Matthew might go. Let's send in, who's out there again? Nick and Ken. All right, let's send in Ken first. And make sure Nick is, like, not close to us. I remember only shaking your head and saying no. It's going to take a while for them to walk in. Yeah, maybe. Is Ken here? And is Nick, Nick away? Ken, just stop there right, right now. And we'll, oh, by the way, we're going to time this, so that's, that's important. Okay, so you're trying to beat Nick, all right? We've assigned a random task for you to do, and people are going to give you clues on how to do it through nonverbal no's, okay? Ready, set, go. Just only say no. Only shake your head or say no. What? No. No. <laughs> no. Not that. No. no. Wait, don't, don't throw them off. No. No. Cold. Icy cold. <laughs> 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 
<laughs> you try ra random things. No. No. I have no clue what you want me to do. I believe. I believe Ken. No. <laughs> Don't worry, there's a two-minute limit, so you don't have to stand here forever. No. 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 Don't worry, there's only 12 more torturous seconds. <laughs> no, I give up. I have no clue. All right, all right, all right. Good job. Thank you, Ken. All right, now let's send to Nick. All right, same thing, except for instead of saying no's, we say yeses or not. And um, try to give them the best, try to help them, okay? So I saw some of you guys who hate Ken throwing him <laughs> off. That's not cool. All right. Come on in, Nick. All right, Nick. So just stop right there. And uh, we're timing you. So you're trying to beat Ken. And uh, he did amazing, by the way. Um, so what you're, you're going to do, a ran we've assigned a random task for you. And we're going to give you nonverbals for you to accomplish that task. Okay? So no one's going to give you point, like no one's pointing or gesturing or giving you words, but we're just going to give you like a nonverbal for you to do it. All right, ready, set, go. Yeah, no, you're still not done. Good job, good job. Man, I, I feel like, I feel bad for Ken. Everyone give him a hug after service. Sorry, Ken. Next time I'll give you the glorious position. Um, let's see. So, that was an illustration. It wasn't just to make Ken feel sad and Nick feel awesome. Um... All right, let's see. Two volunteers. Okay. So I pulled up this um, picture in the past, but it's... Oh, I, didn't, I left my notebook over here. So I pulled up this picture in the past, and it, it's supposed to represent free will. All right? So uh, we talked about last time in form of the Holy Spirit and how it integrates into the way we can do free will. And today we're going to talk about it in a different way. But basically, you're coming down this lane... And free will says that you have multiple options, right? You could make a left, go straight, turn right. There's probably, um, you know, a thousand roads you can take. And in our theory of free will, basically every option is available and accessible, and you can make any 
decision at any point in time. And I, I believe that's true. But at the same time, we experience um, options in a very different way, where even though we can make all kinds of decisions, we tend to make only one or two decisions, that there's a pattern that develops in our life. And it's very difficult to break out of that pattern. For example, one of the most difficult parts is even though there are other options available, we might not even be aware of those options. Or we might not know how to get to those options, even though they are a possibility. So for me and my wife, Nina, we, we fight, you know, surprising. I know, pastors are supposed to be perfect. And, uh, but we fight, and we have a lot of different ways to resolve conflict, right? A lot of different options. Uh, one of them is just like going for the jugular and being really angry and throwing things. And some people uh, fight that way. Another lane is... Um, maybe this tender, like coming together, being vulnerable, trying to talk through our differences and understand from the other perspective. But most of the time, we don't do that either. We are avoiders. So when she we're fighting, one person runs one way and the other person runs the other, and sometimes uh, we run really far. And even though we understand that there's other options of conflict resolution, we, we're always making that hard left. Whenever we come to this crossroad, we go left. And maybe some of it's just how we've been modeled to do conflict resolution. Maybe some of it's our values and what is important to us. You know, I think about um, my, my friend whose dad um, is an alcoholic, and, and he never wanted to be an alcoholic, but he became one. Or families where we come from divorce, and then... Divorce is actually at a higher rate. Even though we don't want to go through that model, oftentimes that's the only model that's available. So having another model is actually really important. And that's kind of what I was trying to illustrate between Ken and, and Nick, right? So Ken knew what, only what not to do. But knowing what not to do isn't very helpful. It gives you, um, it takes out one option in countless other options. It crosses out one road in countless other roads. What we really need is a model. What we really need is someone to tell us, or more so exemplify to us, where we should go. Knowing where we should go is event immensely more valuable than knowing where we should not go. But we're, when we... Um, grow up and, and where we find ourselves lacking is, is just knowing what not to do and oftentimes not knowing what to do. So Ken gave up, and actually we did this in the CM, and uh, some, one of the CM people gave up as well. Um, but the person that we're applauding, the person that's, you know, um, that is able to accomplish and, and, be, and do the task is the one that we gave positive direction to. And I find that in life, in psychology, but I also find it in, in this text right here. On the next slide, we could, we'll look at Philippians chapter 3. Katie, if you want to help, or uh, Mitchell. And it says, join together in following my examples, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Paul is exhorting us to model our life after him. 
And not only after him, but after those who follow him, who follow Christ. And that's one of the most important aspects of doing life together in community, is that we all need models. And we all are models. Because God's revealed himself in different ways to each of us. And we get to model that aspect of of God, of imitating God, of his purpose to each other. Another thing I like is that Paul doesn't just exhort this church, Philippi, to model after him, but there's a sense that we need models that are accessible to us, right? Tim Keller, I love his preaching, I've read his books, but there's a limitation to how I can access his life, how I can how I can fulfill this passage as living as he does, because I don't have access to the way that he lives. I know his sermons, I've read his books, but I don't know how he plays, I don't know how he rests, I don't know how he fights with his wife, I don't know him in this life-on-life way. And I wonder if we as a generation are kind of over church as just like a Sunday thing, because we're suspicious of people in authority. We're suspicious of maybe the pastor. Oh, that's nice that he could preach a good sermon, but is that it? Is that what church is all about? Hearing a nice sermon that I could have done in my PJs on podcasts, um, that's immensely better than this one I just heard. Or is it having models for what we could be in our families? how we could sacrifice in our giving, what we could care for in our lives, what purpose we could live toward. You know, Jesus, he does that with his disciples. He lives this open life with them, where they ate with him, they traveled with him, they saw him through his greatest times of suffering and in his greatest joys. And the disciples didn't see Jesus as the sum of his sermons, but they saw him as a real person that they knew, that they loved. He was their friend. And I think that's what community should look like. That's what church should be, us modeling and knowing each other's life and doing life together. You know, I have a, um, a professor, he was talking about going to China and, and training Uh, pastors in the underground church, and this one church hosted him, and he did a lot of his seminars through them. And he noticed that every morning, like an elder, one of the elders would knock on his door, and he would welcome him in, and then the elder would just spend the whole day with him, right? Uh, Taking him out to food, hanging out, helping him out with a sermon, and when he had nothing to do, he'd just kind of sit on the couch, you know? And uh, the professor enjoyed having him around, and and thought that he was there to help him translate and get acquainted to the city. But a month rolls by, and he's like, I'm, I, I'm pretty good, and it's kind of awkward having him sit here. So he was going to have this conversation just excusing the elder, telling him, hey, I know how to use the bus system to get food. I'll be okay. And as he's explaining this to the elder, the elder of the church said, I'm not primarily here to help you around the city. And then my professor's like, then why are you here? He says, I'm here to understand how you live. That as a church, we don't just value your teachings. We don't just value your curriculum. We value the way you do life. And I hope that somehow 
as a community, that's what we would value the most. And I think that's become one of the markers of Renew, that we aren't just people who gather on Sundays. We're people who know each other and do life together. And, and sometimes that gets hard, right? We're kind of over the dating phase as a church for some of you guys who have been a part of us for a while and integrated into the community. Um, the facade has come down and we see some of each other's cracks and flaws and we get annoyed. But I think this is where um, community really starts to take hold and shape. This is where we become family and this is where we really start to model from the truth of our lives rather than just an easy sermon or a superficial perspective. Here, Paul kind of talks about two different models. Um, and he starts with those who don't model Christ, who are, are negative towards the Christian faith. He says, as I have told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. I remember reading this at first and kind of wanting to skip over it because it sounds pretty brutal, right? It sounds very condescending and judgmental and everything our generation hates. But I look at the posture and the attitude of Paul, even as he describes people who are enemies of the cross. First, we see that he's in tears, that he has compassion for them, that he loves them, that his heart's desire is for them to be brought into God's kingdom and God's family. He's not yelling at them. He's not throwing hardcore, hardcover Bibles. He's not condemning them. No, he's weeping for them, and he cares deeply about them. And I would say Paul's doing that because he understands that he was an enemy of Christ. He was part of the first, of executing the first martyr. That after Stephen was executed and stoned, he had the, the clothes on his back was laid at Paul's feet. And, and as he, he's approving of this execution, and he's traveling to cities in order to persecute and break up churches. And here is where Jesus appears to him and says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Meaning that he was maybe one of the greatest enemies of the early church. So I think for Paul, he's not speaking down on people. He's speaking in reflection of himself, that he cries for them, and there's some tears over his old life as well. And secondly, the way he defines them is that they're enemies of the cross. And there are real enemies in the Philippi church. After Paul plants this church, he's actually kicked out of the city because he drives away a demon who, um, is, a, who is enabling this girl to tell the future, which I actually don't think demons can tell the future. They don't have that ability, but they have the ability to um, act in the future in order to fulfill what they had foretold. All right, so um, we could go into demonology at a different time, but anyways... That happens, the owner of this girl gets upset and they start inciting a riot in order to throw Paul into prison. So there's these very real external enemies of the church of the cross. And just kind of the overarching Roman Empire is persecuting the church at the time. And then there's also internal enemies. 
Uh, Paul, even in the earlier parts of this chapter, um, as Patrick was preaching about, is confronting people within the church that have made the gospel legalistic and have contorted it. And so he's speaking about them, and he's saying that this is the way they live. It's not that they're just sinning incidentally. It's not that they're walking away from God and repenting and coming back, but their whole life is wrapped around the destruction of the church or the tainting of the gospel. And this is how he speaks of them. He says their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, they glory in their shame, and their mind is set on earthly things. When it says their God is their stomach, it's, it's basically meaning that they're wrapping their life around their desire right now. That whatever they, whatever's going to give them pleasure now, that's their driving force. That's what defines what they will do and how they will spend their life. They glory in their shame, meaning that there's things that people do that are shameful, are evil, should be hidden away, but they actually bring it in front of others and proclaim it. They're proud of the evil that they've done. And lastly, that their mind are on earthly things. All they care about is what's temporal and what's immediate and what's in front of them. And I'm sure all of you guys have had those conversations or maybe been a part of it where, you know, this guy or, or girl is just kind of giving their sexual exploits and, and really excited about what they've done. Me and, me and Ben were hanging out at Yard House, and these two guys come up to us, and they talk about, like, how he's such a good friend because he's willing to share his girlfriend, right? And it's kind of inappropriate to talk about at church, but honestly, you guys have all been in those conversations where it's, like, crazy explicit, and people are proud of it. Or you look at um, someone who's very violent or who's a gangster, and they, they mark up their face to talk about how many kills that they've executed. Or you t- look at someone who's a druggie or addicted to alcohol, and they talk about what drugs they've experimented with. But then we also look at the corporate world and, and greed and tax evasion and cheating and, um, and putting like exploiting people in other countries or even their own workers. But it's not something they hide. It's something that they share about how to do. And so these are the people that Paul's talking about. And I think that there's a sense that we all feel like there are moments in our life where we were there as well. You know, I identify with Paul, that even though I've grown up as Christian, there's places in my life where I feel like instead of God being God, I'm drawn by my earthly appetites, you know, and that's, I can ditch it all for this one desire um, that's perverted. Or I've been in places where people glory in their shame and I've participated in it in different ways. And I think that there's some of you guys who don't want your life to be defined like that, who come to church and maybe you're not Christian, but you're like, I'm tired of superficial conversations. I'm tired of living my life or seeing other people live their life and being convinced that it's not worth it, that there's more purpose. I've prayed and and wanted more. And so for some of you, maybe you're surrounded by this, but you're looking for a way out and you desire more in your life. Well, in the next passage, Paul contrasts um, people who are defined by the earth and their desires with people who are citizens of heaven. He says, "But but our citizenship is in heaven. 
And as we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So Paul here is saying, in contrast to people who are all about this life, who don't see any further than their appetite, who glory in fulfilling their appetite in any way, even if it's to the suffering of others, even if it's to the detriment of their own body, you are to be different. You are to have an eternal perspective, to live for another resurrection, to be in in anticipation for the Savior. And I wonder if that's what defines our life. I wonder if in our time and in our relationship and in our talents and wealth, if we're always having eternity help inform those areas of our life, if that's really what our goal is. Because we live in a totally different context, right? The, the media and our friends and society rails against this. And somehow, Paul is exhorting us, like Jake's sermon, to focus on the goal, to run and, and forget what's behind us, forget our old life, forget what everything, everyone else is running towards, and run, run towards knowing Jesus and the power of his resurrection. That's the goal. And this is the actualization of it. And I wonder if we really hold that closely, that there's eternity, that there is a new body waiting for us, that there is a Lord who we're waiting to kind of make everything new, to make everything right, how that should shape our life in a completely different way. Like, Has those realities taken hold of our lives. You know, verse 16 speaks about this. It's kind of the goal. Verse 16 really precedes verse 17, which we started off with. It says, let us live up to what we have already obtained. We already have salvation. We already have uh, this new earth that's waiting for us. We already have righteousness. We already have the love of God. But let us live up to those things. And so let me give you some tangible illustrations. I, I think about, um, I love the beach, and I, I'm at Corona Del Mar most of the time. And I just look up at those homes, and they are gorgeous. And I'm like, I really want to live there, to walk down those steps and be in the ocean, to be able to host my friends there and like do these lavish parties, to play volleyball all day. I mean, man, that's the dream, right? Um, and then I look at my friends who go traveling across the world, and there are places that me and Nina still want to go and we're saving up for. And then there's places that we'll never be able to get to in this life. And I think about all the things that people can, can have on this earth, like a beautiful Ferrari or a watch that's like 100K that is like meticulously built with beautiful craftsmanship. And I, I'm not saying any of those things are bad, or any of those things should be unobtainable for you. But I'm just saying that what happens when we bring eternity into perspective? What happens when I sit there looking at this house and saying, well, God, I'm a pastor, and for me to buy this house means that I've scammed a lot of people, and none of you should be at my church, right, at our church. Um, and to say, okay, I'm a but one day in about 50 years when I retire and new earth comes around, I will have a house better than this. I will go to 
places on this earth that are spectacular and then revamped because you're making things new. And, and the most beautiful spots on earth will look like the ghetto, right? After God renovates the earth. And, and then there's these like streets of gold. And I think maybe it's literal, but figuratively, there's also the sense that the things we hold on to most tightly, the things that are most precious on this earth, will just kind of be walking on when we get up there. That it will be so meaningless that we're just like, we're just, it's the sidewalk. And I, I don't know how to live in that tension. I'm still figuring it out. I hope you'll do it with me. Like, we should play volleyball <laughs> for sure. And we should travel. And there are good things to hold here. But how do we also hold it in tension with eternity? How do we hold things here but really grab onto and wrap our lives and center ourselves on what's ahead, on the goal? How do we keep our eyes focused and forget what's behind in the sense that it's not what we're living for. And God has called us to sacrifice in different ways on this earth. And I hope that you'll be able to let go of those things and say the prize is better. And God has called us to be rich in different ways on this earth. And I hope that in your richness, you will also use that for what's eternal that you'll be blessed by the richness that God's given you and then also steward it for his kingdom. I come from a, a story where my family are immigrants to the U.S. And so this idea of citizenship means something totally different in our story. Um, that, and it's a, it's a big story, right? Going from a, one country to another and saying that this country is better, it has more promise, as it has, we're more aligned in our values. There's more freedom here. But I see, as I interact with a lot of immigrants, uh, first and second generation, there's people who come to America who are afraid to, to grasp on to the freedom and to the rights of an American citizen. Even though they are citizens of the U.S., they still live as citizens in another country. Maybe they're in fear, or maybe they don't, have, they don't stand up for some rights that they have. And I think that Paul's reminding us we are citizens of heaven, and that this earth and its things, they're going to pass away, and don't spend your life as citizens from the past. Don't send, spend your life being citizens of another country. There's something bigger. There's something more beautiful. There's another rule and another kingdom and another king that we get to live under and live there, operate there, um, be there. You know, when we become Christians, when we're reborn into his kingdom, we are reborn as children of God, as our core identity. And I, I wake up every day and I try to just tell myself, I am a child of God. And I, I'm trying to live that into the rest of my identities so that it just pushes them away, right? My identity isn't a pastor or a husband or a mediocre volleyball player. My, I am a, a child of God, and when those things are threatened, it's not core to me. And so I'm trying to live up to what I've already obtained, this childhood, 
so that it's not beauty, it's not money, it's not accomplishments that define me. But we could be his children and still be defined by these other things. I'm trying to live up to what I've already obtained, that Jesus has given me his righteousness. I'm no longer a sinner. There's no more condemnation or, or shame. And so God, help me in my life to pattern myself towards righteousness, towards being the righteousness that I already am. I'm trying to live up to what I've already obtained, that God's given me immortality, that I don't have to fear in this life, that I can let go of it when he calls me to, because there's a new body and a new kingdom that I get to fully be a part of. And that's what Paul says, run towards this goal because it's beautiful and magnificent and worth letting everything else go to have. He forgets the past, not because it's not appealing at all. It's because there's something so much more spectacular ahead of him. I'm praying for our church because we're young, most of us. If you're, if you're over 40, I'm really thankful you're here because we need a lot more people over 40 here. But if you're 20 and 30 like I am, um, man, life can just seem like it goes forever. And we can forget that eternity is not too far away. We can pattern our whole life around the next 30 years. But for someone in their 50s or 60s or 70s, they look up and they see like 10 more years left on earth. And that's not very long, or 15. And for them, I think they look back and they're like, how did I live this chapter of my life where it's actually worth something in the eternal future where this, this last 80 years looks like a drop in the bucket. This last 80 years look like, looks like fog dissipating. This last 80 years looks like a flower that bloomed and then withered. It's quick, it's fast, and yet eternity is hedged. So much of it is hedged on how we spend our life now. What if us as a young church would live for eternity together in our 20s and 30s and 40s? and have that as why and how we do life as citizens waiting for a savior, waiting for the resurrection, and not just our souls, but for our bodies and for this earth, that he's making all things new. Father, we come to you, and we thank you for the truth that is already true in us, but we are still grappling on how it can be tangible in all these other spaces. And we need you to show us, and we desperately need models around us. Um, there are some people in this room that you're calling into Renew who have lived this life for you, and, and we need them here, God. And I pray that you would call more people who can be models that are living for eternity, that are living for you. And Jesus, we thank you that you are the ultimate model. You know, we have, we have people we look up to, but they all fail. They, are, they all come short. We get to learn some things from them, and then in other ways, we're disappointed. But you, you, God, you never disappoint us. And so as we take communion today, we remember the blood that you shed for us and the body that was broken and how you fearlessly and courageously stepped up to death stepped up to sin 
and showed us that we have nothing to be afraid of. That in your resurrection, in you coming back from life, you show us that we can as well. We, we have hope not in a teaching, but in a life, a savior that we see living it out, this, this resurrection. Help us to live for that as well, that that would be the goal. I pray for everyone in this room, Father. I pray that on this new earth, we would be with each other. And that everything I say today, we would be able to touch and see with our eyes and experience. In Jesus' name. As you feel led, check, check, check. As you feel led, please um, help yourself to communion on the front table and also in the back.